0: The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and
1: Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer.
0: And now... Here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. Welcome, my friends. Welcome, Recovery Family, those of you who are advocates, and all of you who study endlessly this wonderful book, affectionately known as the Big Book by uh, members of Alcoholics Anonymous and others. It is good to have you with us here today on Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and myself, the Monty Man, your co-host. Chris, good day, my friend.
1: How is it going, Monty?
0: It is going well. We have a brand-new blog up. Folks, you can uh, you can read that. Uh, they're short, and it's at Take12Radio.com. Uh, no, excuse me, Take12Radio.wordpress.com. And, uh, Chris, we also have a brand-new uh, brand new, uh uh, videos up on our YouTube, which is YouTube <laughs> excuse me, YouTube.com forward slash Monty Meyer, M-O-N-T-Y-M-E-Y-E-R. And uh, so we'll be we're gonna be talking about uh, walking through the big book and giving it some plugs on both of those. Uh, so folks check those out as well. And uh, Chris, it is an absolute gorgeous this is the best day we've had all year here in Albany, Oregon. It is absolutely gorgeous. Gorgeous I wish I had a, a sunroof on the uh, on the audio booth.
1: <laughs> you know it's not, it's not a bad day here in uh, New Jersey either. Uh, I think uh, I think spring is heading our way.
0: Well, good deal, and I, I, I know that it uh, for those of us who uh, live with alcoholism and addiction, it seems like the better the weather, the better mood we're in.
1: That's true. Sometimes our serenity is directly tied into meteorology for one
0: reason or another. Uh, okay, we are uh, in the big book, of course. If you have your big book with you, um, turn to a vision for you. We left off last week. Um, did we leave off on 153? Is that where we We left were? off on
1: 153, uh, the third paragraph down.
0: Okay, Super.
1: You know, I think it's official, Monty. We've uh, we, we're going to be in the Guinness's Book of World Records for the longest big book study.
0: <laughs> that's so. That's we we ought to uh, register for that.
1: We probably we probably should. What is this the thirty fourth hour of it?
0: Something like that. Yeah.
1: Well, that's good. A- anyway, uh, at least we're not missing <laughs> anything, and uh, I'm t- I'm telling you, I'm having a really good time doing this with you. Now we left off last week. Uh, Uh, On 153, um, I'll start reading. In in the chapter, Working with Others, you gathered an idea of how we approach and aid others to health. Um, I'm going to stop with that sentence again. You know, it seems like we keep beating a dead horse, but time and time again in this book, it explains that the approach to helping the alcoholic is in the step process. Mm -hmm. And the reason I keep beating that dead horse is you really... Probably wouldn't know it, going to a lot of the twelve-step uh, fellowships today. That that's what uh, that's what that's what the the process uh, is is all about. Right. Uh, it almost seems like the process today is about you know talking about discussing things and getting current uh, with people. All of which is important and good. Uh-huh. But it's not it's not a treatment for
0: alcoholism.
1: Uh, in the chapter, working with others, they were very specific. How many? How many directions were in there, Monty? Remember, we were counting. Oh gee, eighty to
0: ninety or something. No, no, no. no. There was no. There was more than that. There was actually there was over a hundred. Yeah, I remember now.
1: There was over a hundred instructions in how to work with another alcoholic, how to help another alcoholic, right? And and very rarely in there was there uh, uh, drag them to a meeting or tell them to. You know, tell them to uh, to get current with everybody in the group. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not really what it was talking about in there. And didn't you
0: even say that that back then meetings were a suggestion? Uh,
1: meetings were meetings were kind of a, a luxury, uh, right? one of the things that would happen was if you were serious, if they saw that you were serious about getting over this drinking thing, that meant that you were doing a lot of step work. And if you're doing a lot of step work, they would kind of pull you into their fold. And a lot of the meetings were about, you know, uh, talking about how to help other people, basically. That's what the first meetings were about. They would get together and discuss where they can find more prospects, where they can find more people to help. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very different than... uh, than, than uh, the meetings of today, um, you know there should be some difference in in the meetings. Uh, we were, you know, they were they were learning early on. Uh, but again, what what I what I'm uh, I'm very concerned about is how far away from um, the actual process of the twelve steps that are laid out in this book, um, some some meetings and some fellowships have come
0: sure, and have gone bet.
1: today. Suppose now that, through you, several families have adopted this way of life. What way of life? The way of the steps. way of the steps. And of helping other people. You will want to know more of how to proceed from that point. Perhaps the best way of, treat- way of treating you to a glimpse of your future will be to describe the growth of the fellowship among us. Here is a brief account. Years ago, in 1935, one of our number made a journey to a certain western city, and that would be Bill's trip out to Akron to try to take over the tire company. From a business standpoint, his trip came off badly. Uh, his his <laughs> temporary partners left him there with no money, uh, very disgruntled that the whole deal had blown up in their face. Right. Um, had he been successful in his enterprise, he would have been set on his feet financially, which at the time seemed vitally important. Yeah, he, would have, he was positioning himself to become president of that tire company uh, by, uh, by doing a, a, a stock proxy fight. Uh, thank, thank God that uh, Bill Wilson did not come, become the president of one more tire company in Akron. You know, we, you and I might not be here today uh, if he did. Uh, but his venture wound up in a lawsuit and bogged down completely. The proceeding was shot through with much hard feeling and controversy. Bitterly discouraged, he found himself in a strange place, discredited and almost broke. Still physically weak and sober but a few months, he saw that his predicament was dangerous. He wanted so much to talk with someone but whom. Imagine imagine this, Monty. You're, you're sober. I think he was sober about five months or so. Uh, the, the whole thing blew up in his face. He didn't have enough money to get home. Uh, one more time, his plans and designs uh, ended up, uh, you know, uh, in in turning into a nightmare, uh, his self esteem was tied into this. His reputation was tied into this. And here he is in a strange city, you know, with maybe five bucks or a couple of dollars left in his pocket. Not enough to get home, uh, but just a couple of dollars in his pocket. Completely de- dejected. Uh, this is this is the time where uh, relapse. Can very well be eminent in, mm-hmm. in situations like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book and other places, it basically says that if your spiritual house is not in order, uh, the certain trials or low spots ahead are, are not, you're not going to be able to maneuver, maneuver your way through them. And this would have been uh, one of those occasions. One dismal afternoon, he paced the hotel lobby wondering how his bill was to be paid. At w- I'm, I still wonder how it got paid. I think he probably walked out on it. At one end of the room stood a glass-covered directory of local churches. Down the lobby, a door opened into an attractive bar. He could see the gay crowd inside. In there, he would find companionship and release. Unless he took some drinks, he might not have the courage to scrape up an acquaintance, and he would have a lonely weekend. Of course he couldn't drink, but why not sit hopefully at a table, a bottle of ginger ale before him? After all, had he not been sober six months now, perhaps he could handle, say, three drinks no more. Fear gripped him. He was on thin ice. Again, it was the old, insidious insanity, that first drink. With a shiver, he turned away and walked down the lobby to the church directory. Music and gay chatter still floated to him from the bar. You know, that that turn where he turned away from the bar and headed back to the church directory and the payphone is a very, very pivotal moment. You know, Hmm. um, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, a lot of people's uh, sobriety and recovery hang on seconds and inches, you know, little defining moments that if they would have gone the other way uh, would have changed things forever, and and that was certainly one of them. Uh, But I believe, here's my theory about this. I believe he had done enough work with other alcoholics. He had done an initial run through the steps, and he was continuing to work with other alcoholics. When he was in New York, he was in fit spiritual condition. If he was not in fit spiritual condition, he would have turned toward the bar.
0: Which also meant that that he was uh, in a process of continuing to develop a relationship with the Creator. Yes. Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely! That yeah. was that was paramount back then. Uh, developing uh, a relationship with the Creator, uh, there was nothing more important than that. Mm-hmm. You know, in some of Doctor Bob's uh, Bob's writings, uh, you'll you'll find uh, where he'll say meetings were uh, meetings were desirable. Uh, a morning prayer and meditation was essential to recovery. Mm-hmm. But what about his responsibilities? His family and the men who would die because they would not know how to get well. Ah, yes, those are the other alcoholics. There must be many such in this town. He, he would phone a clergyman. His sanity returned, and he thanked God. Selecting a church at random from the directory, he stepped into a booth and lift, lifted the receiver. Let me tell you a little bit about this, because this is another amazing piece of Alcoholics Anonymous history. On that directory was a list of all the churches and phone numbers to get a hold of them, uh, like probably 12 different churches were on that, uh, on that uh, plaque on the wall. And he had a bunch of nickels that he had gotten from the bar. And he started dropping nickels into the phone and dialing these numbers. And literally, because I've heard this on some of his, uh, some of his, his own tapes where he tells his story, what mm-hmm. he would say is, uh, hi, Father Flanagan. My name is Bill. I'm a Rummy from New York, and I want to talk to another Rummy. And <laughs> time after time, all he heard was a dial tone. <laughs> you know, these people were hanging up on him. Now, now he finally got a hold of Walter Tunks. Now, Walter Tunks was in a prayer group with Henrietta Cyberling and Ann Smith. Uh, they were doing the Oxford Group stuff. And he understood a little bit about um, about uh, the spiritual process. And he understood that through this Oxford Group, a lot of people were getting better, drunks included. Uh, Bob Smith was actually uh, actually in Walter Tunks's prayer group at this time, I believe. So instead of Walter Tunks thinking, this is a crackpot, this is a rummy that wants to talk to another rummy, what he basically said was, "Well, explain yourself a little bit." And Bill talked about how he was staying sober by helping other alcoholics. And he goes, "Well, I'll tell you what. You know, uh, let me give you a number of someone." And he gave he gave Bill the number of Henrietta Cyberling. Henrietta Cyberling was very close to Ann Smith, uh, Doctor Bob's wife, and she got a call from Bill that night. And they tried to arrange for Bill to come right over. Uh, to meet with B- Doctor Bob that night, but he was too drunk. It had to be the next morning. Now, now, why was a call like this accepted? If you got a if you got a call from from a drunk who wants to talk to another drunk, it you know it would usually be uh, there'd there'd usually be uh, a little bit of resistance taking it seriously or paying a lot of attention to it. But what had happened, Monty? is in this prayer group with Walter Tunks, Henrietta Cyberling, and Ann Smith, they had started to pray for Dr. Bob's recovery. Hmm. And when Dr. Bob wasn't there, they would do prayer groups, and they would pray that something or someone would be able to help Dr. Bob. And all of a sudden, here's this phone call from a rummy from New York who has has a cure, he, he was saying, for alcoholism, and he needs to talk to another rummy, do you know anybody? What they said, instead of saying there's a crack button hanging up the phone, they were thinking, what took this guy so long to call? We've been praying for months. Huh. So it wow. was the perfect storm. You know, it was the perfect storm for getting Bill Wilson uh, uh, and Dr. Bob together. Mm-hmm. His call to the clergyman led him presently to a certain resident of the town who, though formerly able and respected, was then nearing the nadir of alcoholic despair. And that was Dr. Bob. It was, the unusual situ- it was the usual situation, home in jeopardy, wife ill, children distracted, bills in arrears, and standing damaged. He had a desperate desire to stop, but saw no way out, for he had earnestly tried many avenues of escape, Remember, he was a doctor. He was trying as many medical solutions as there were at that time. Sure, Painfully aware of being somehow abnormal, the man did not fully realize what it meant to be alcoholic. Again, here is an amazing thing. A a failed stock shyster comes out to Akron, Ohio, and gives a medical doctor, a surgeon, the medical estimate of what alcoholism was. Because he was bringing it from Dr. Silkworth, so again, a very very un- very, very unusual that, that Dr. Bob would be listening to a medical estimate from a stockbroker. <laughs> you know <laughs> When our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long, and again, that really is. The problem with alcoholism, and that's the part that's really misunderstood. It's misunderstood by everybody practically. That if only we really wanted to not drink, we could. And uh, and again, these two guys, you know, uh, looking in each other's eyes, understood that that he, they were sitting in front of somebody else that understood mm-hmm. a spiritual experience. He conceded was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. Again, Bill was following uh... following what you can find in the chapter working with others you talk about your own drinking uh... then you talk about how desperate you were to stop and then you talk about how you were exposed to the step process the spiritual exercises of the steps and how they brought on a spiritual awakening and enabled you to become recovered from alcoholism. And this is what Bill was sharing with Dr. Bob. And Dr. Bob was saying, sure, I understand a spiritual experience, but some of the things that you're telling me you did, I just can't do. And mainly it was the ninth step. Mainly it was making amends. Uh, uh, Dr. Bob just didn't feel uh, enough spiritual fortitude at that point in time to actually go around and and make direct amends to people remember he was like a shattered wreck he was he was a shaken shattered wreck it's very very difficult for those people to think they have the power to go go around town knocking on doors making direct amends and usually it's because they don't have the power right then and there right the power comes when you start moving through these steps yeah He told how he lived in constant worry about those who might find out about his alcoholism. He had, of course, the familiar alcoholic obsession that few knew of his drinking. Uh, believe me, a lot of people knew about his drinking. Why, he argued, should he lose the remainder of his business only to bring still more suffering to his family by foolishly admitting his plight to people from whom he made his livelihood? Remember, he, Dr. Bob was a proctologist, and he was afraid if he told all his patients that he was an alcoholic, there wouldn't be too many more proctors that would he'd be able to work on. So that really was his, his basic fear. He would do anything, he said, but that. Uh. Intrigued, however, he invited our friend to his home. Sometime later, and just as he thought he was getting control of his liquor situation, he went on a roaring bender. For him, this was the sp- spree that ended all sprees. He saw that he would have to face his problem squarely, that God, uh, and that God might give him mastery. God might give him mastery. Now, the, the situation was... At this point in time, uh, Dr. Bob had to go to Atlantic City for his proctology convention, okay? (laughs) He did it every year. Uh, He's just, that's what I do. I'm sorry. You know, all this recovery stuff is very, very important, but I need to go to my convention. Uh, And, you know, that happens today when you're sponsoring people, Monty, and, you know, they need to go tour with the Grateful Dead or something or, yeah. or you know I always go on go to go to uh, Aruba for spring break you know they they're, they're going to have this this idea that they need to do something and that something is going to be very dangerous uh for their sobriety especially if they haven't gone through the steps and that's what happened with Bill with Bob he got on a train to uh, Atlantic City he didn't even get off the train he got drunk on the train so, Three days later, or something, what happened is uh, the, the train conductors got him back to Akron, you know, called up his, uh, his secretary, and she came down and, and they poured him off the train. I don't even think he got to Atlantic City. You know, what a, what a mess. Uh, but that's, that's what happened uh, to Dr. Bob on his last trunk. One morning, he took the bull by the horns and set out to tell those he feared what his trouble had been. He found himself surprisingly well-received and learned that many knew of his drinking. Stepping into his car, he made the rounds of people he had hurt. He trembled as he went about, for this might mean ruin, particularly to a person in his line of business. At midnight, he came home exhausted but very happy. He, had, he has not had a drink since. Now, this is pretty important. The one part of the program Dr. Bob would not do was the ninth step. He was okay with everything else, and he ended up getting drunk. And I've seen that happen with alcoholics. I have seen that happen with alcoholics. I've seen them stop at step eight or step nine and get drunk. That's what is supposed to happen if you're an alcoholic. You are supposed to get drunk if you're not ready to to write to the best of your ability the wrongs that you've caused in the past. It's important for your connection to God to have have done uh, right by the rest of God's children. It's just, it's a spiritual principle. And what happened was, uh, was when he got poured off of that train and he started to detox, he had an operation that he could not postpone. There were no other surgeons that could do it. He had to do it or really, or really he would probably would have gotten thrown out of the hospital, kicked off the surgical staff. So Bill and, uh, and, Anne, you know, Got him to the hospital. Bill gave him three three bottles of beer, gave him a couple of second alls or you know whatever kind of benzodiazepines they had at that time. Uh Got got him looted up really good and, you know, put his, put his gown on him, put the, put the gloves on him and the mask and shoved him through the door, get in there and go do that operation on that poor unsuspecting person in, <laughs> in, the, in the harness straps. And, uh, and as soon as he was done with that operation, he didn't go back out and, and see Bill and Ann. What he did was he headed for his car, and he realized that to stop this nightmare of a life he has, he needs to go make amends and that's what he did he went up one side of the street and down the other and he admitted his harms uh he, you know he asked he asked them is you know what do i need to do to make this right he did he did what you're supposed to do on an amends and when he came back it was late at night he was exhausted uh you know he had lived in that one town and most of his harms had been in that one town so he could really knock the amends out in, in a short amount of time he got back and he was exhausted and he he never drank again monty
0: do you think that one of the reasons, and probably a big, big, big reason that uh, people drink again if they do not do um, the eighth and ninth step, is because um, if you have odd against your brother, or your brother has odd against you, and there's this conflict between you that you shut yourself off from the sunlight of the spirit? I
1: do, I do, and it's it's been expressed in many ways. Uh, G- Jesus basically said it by, you know, don't don't be bringing uh, bringing gifts to the altar if you've right. got problems with your fellow man. Straighten out those problems with your fellow man, and then then you can come to the altar. Then you can come to the Father. Yeah, um, and it, it, you know, most most uh, religious traditions, most good philosophies uh, will contend that we need to reduce the amount of guilt, shame, and remorse that we have inside of us to be able to uh to, to, to comfortably to comfortably move through uh through life uh I, I believe that i believe that there's cause and effect uh i believe that um, when you go out and you make direct direct amends, there's nothing that will put more muscle into your recovery than that and it makes you strong and it makes you clear and it gets rid of a lot of the things that block you off from a clear connection mm-hmm. and a clear relationship mm-hmm. to god um that's really the best way I can describe it um you know cause and effect uh, i was I was doing an interview with an individual today who's uh, who's a doctor and not only is he a doctor he's he's in he's in a twelve step organization he He's in charge of detoxing a ton of people, but he understands that detoxing is only a, the very beginning of a continuum that's going to lead to long-term recovery. And he said that the statistics on, uh, on 28-day treatment are like 3% stay sober five years. Uh, he says the statistics on people in AA who do a fifth step are 60% stay sober Uh, five years and I was telling him that I'll bet you nobody's probably done this because they've done this 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 study but I'll bet you anything 95% of the people who have gone out and made their amends are going to stay sober five years there's there's cause and there's effect certain things work against the, the addictive illness and certain things don't I think it's if we if we suffer from addictive illness, we need to pay attention to the things that work, and if we care about our lives or the lives of others, we need to get about the business of doing those things that work, however illogical or or you know irregardless of whether there's there's a, a peer-reviewed, uh, you know, effic- efficacy study that's been done on these processes. Uh, w- you know, we need to pay attention to what has worked for the most people and, and do it. I mean, that's the only responsible way to survive and to not cause more harm and misery uh, in your family.
0: Here, Here's an idea. Uh, th- this goes back to the ninth step uh, promises. Uh, assuming that that a person is not doing this, we might say, um <clears throat> if we avoid this uh, phase of our development uh we will be <laughs> amazingly depressed before we 're halfway through <laughs> yes we 're going we 're not going to know any freedom we 're not going to know happiness uh we 're going to regret the past we 're going to want to shut the door on it uh we uh, we, we won 't be able to comprehend the word serenity we 're not going to know peace, and no matter how far down the scale we have gone. Uh, we we'll will m- find
1: we can go lower. Yeah, we could go lower, <laughs>
0: and on and on it goes because I would absolutely. be absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So those
1: are those are reverse promises. Yeah, you know, you know um, I really, I really wish that they would have done really critical studies of uh, of of chronic alcoholics who engaged in this process. Uh, you know, it, it's just not something that you're going to see much of because you know rarely have we seen a person follow these suggestions, especially in this day and age. But uh, I think that there's nothing more important. Uh, there, there's no process of recovery for or treatment of alcoholism out there. There just isn't that's as effective as someone who is willing to do all this stuff. Now, mm-hmm. now where, where there's a lot of argument in, uh, in the treatment and recovery field is, well, what do you do about the people who are not willing to do these steps. What if they continue to be unconvinced at a level uh, that, that's just so deep that they will not engage in this? They cannot come to the conclusion that this is what they need to do to recover. Should you abandon them? And, and certainly, I don't think they should be abandoned. And that's where that's where you know that's uh, that's a whole other argument. You know, what are you going to do about the people who are unwilling? uh uh to completely give themselves to the simple program. That that's a whole nother ball of wax. But um but for for our particular study that we're doing, Monty, we're we're talking about the people who can and will yeah. completely give themselves to the simple program. And and those people are gonna be fine. They really are going to be fine. Uh the, the people who are unwilling for whatever reason they cannot or they will not give themselves to this program there's there's a whole other a whole other gamut of stuff that's out there for them there's multiple treatment experiences there's medication maintenance there, there's lobotomies, there's insane asylums there's all there's all kinds of harm reduction there's all kinds of processes that are going to be put in front of these people but I've got to tell you the, the best the best deal on the planet for the alcoholic is what's in this book. As we shall see, he now means a great deal to his community, and the major liabilities of 30 years of hard drinking have been repaired in four. But life was not easy for the two friends. Plenty of difficulties presented themselves. Both saw that they must keep spiritually active. We must keep spiritually active. One day they called up the head nurse of a local hospital. They explained their need and inquired if she had a first-class alcoholic prospect. Another funny part about this is... Uh, is Dr. Bob went into the hospital and started asking about alcoholic patients. And because he was a proctologist, they were going, well, well what, do you, you know, what, do you, what do you want to know about them for? And uh, the, the head nurse basically asked, well, you know, Dr. Bob, why, why do you care about uh, alcoholics? And he goes, well, I think I've found, I think we found a cure for alcoholism. And the nurse looked at him and and said to him, have you tried it on yourself? (laughs) He had no idea she even knew he drank.
0: Uh, He replied, yes,
1: we've got a corker. He's just beaten up a couple of nurses. Goes off his head completely when he's drinking. But he's a grand chap when he's sober, though he's been in here eight times in the last six months. Understand, he was once a well-known lawyer in town. But just now we've got him strapped down tight. This was Bill Dotson, and Bill Dotson was a chronic, you know, hopeless low bottom alcoholic. And he would, you know, he would go on these tears. And uh, uh, my particular, uh, my particular experience with alcoholism, Monty was, I started to get more and more violent, you know, uh, in my in my drunken blackouts. So I, I was reacting violently. It was a it was a part of the insanity. Um, and I was doing crazy things, and it's really lucky I'm not in prison right now. You know,
0: yeah, I'm doing you bet. life.
1: But um, but what would? But he actually he actually blackened the eyes of a nurse or two. And when he came to, he was strapped down. He was in four point restraints. And imagine imagine how how horrible you feel when you find out that you beaten up a nurse, and now you're strapped down in the hospital where, where that nurse works. I mean, the amount of shame and remorse that this guy must have been feeling is, is beyond belief. Here was a prospect, all right, but by the description, none too promising. The use of spiritual principles in such cases was not so well understood as it is now. The, the, the use of steps in, in those days, uh-huh. is not so well understood as it is now. But one of the friends said, put him in a private room, we'll be down. Now, another funny part of this story that Bill Dotson told, because I've heard his story on tape, too, was no one got a private room until they were about to die. They figured that the private rooms were for the patients who deserved the dignity of dying, you know, with, uh, with just their family, not, not in a crowded room. So when they put this guy in a private room, he thought he, thought he was dying. <laughs> he was quite concerned about it. Uh, two days later, a future fellow of Alcoholics Anonymous stared glassly at the strangers beside his bed. Who are you fellows and why this private room? I was always in a ward before. Said one of the visitors, we're giving you a treatment for alcoholism. That's what they called the step process. Hopelessness was written large on the man's face as he replied, oh, but that's no use. Nothing would fix me. I'm a goner. The last three times I got drunk on the way home from here, I'm afraid to go out the door. I can't understand it. For an hour, the two friends told him about their drinking experiences. Over and over, he would say, that's me, that's me, I drink like that. And again, this is a beautiful example of a 12-step call. You need for the other person to to identify with you. So you you talk about your drinking experiences.
0: So they they literally were, were telling him more stories.
1: They were basically telling him what it was like. Yeah. You know, what it was like. This is how my drinking was. You know, not nece- not necessarily... You know, uh, the way you would, you, would, you would think of a war story
0: today, today Right.
1: More, more or less talking about the obsession of the mind, talking about the allergy of the body, talking about how the unmanageability manifested in their lives, and, and uh, the problems that, uh, that alcoholism caused. You know, that's really what they were doing. The man in the bed was told of the acute poisoning from which he suffered, how it deteriorates the body of the alcoholic and warps his mind, the obsession of the mind, the allergy of the body. There was much talk about the mental state preceding the first drink. Oh. Now, again, this is sometimes, this is some, sometimes where we, we screw up when we're doing a 12-step call. Uh, you know, we just talk about the war stories. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about that strange mental state that precedes the first drink. Because that is, that is that strange mental state that precedes the first drink, because that's the obsession of the mind. And that's the hard part for us to understand. Even into our last days of drinking, we really think we are the ones making the decision to drink. We don't know that, that we're, we lack the power, choice, and control to not drink. So that needs to be hammered home. Whenever we're doing twelve uh, step calls, we need to hammer that home, and we need to show from our own experience how that uh, the the, the uh, obsession of the mind manifests. And I've got my own stories that that I tell. You know, uh, each of us has our own sure. uh, our own stories about how we drank at the worst time, <laughs> the worst circumstance, with the worst consequences looming right at us. We still drank. And, you know, that's that's a, a picture of uh, of the obsession of the mind.
0: We, we, we are so inundated with uh, other people telling us, you know, you made the wrong decision. You can make the choice not to do that. And, we, and, and because we don't understand when we first come in, we believe that. And so that just piles more shame and more shame, which for me just brought on more drinking.
1: You know monty i can 't agree with you more um, there's a lot of bad information that gets that gets spread around the twelve step fellowships right because uh, a lot of bad treatment centers uh, were churning people out in the seventies eighties, and nineties well, you know, they were told that they, they could prevent their own relapse by having relapse prevention training. And, you know, they were told how to people, places and things are going to protect you, you know, from picking up the drink. And they, they, were, they were being sold the line that they actually had the capacity to make a choice. To drink or not drink. And, you know, sometimes the alcoholic can't. The problem is sometimes they can't.
0: Yeah, that's it. So
1: by telling somebody that you need to rely on making the right choice, you're handing them the wrong tool. It's not going to get the job done. You know, and again, there are, there are so many people with such bad information. Uh, that wander around all the different twelve-step fellowships today. That you really have to be discerning in who you who you listen to. You really do, right? Because uh, because it's it's quite possible ninety percent of the people in your meeting are heavy drinkers. They're not alcoholics, and they can put the plug in the jug. But the definition of an alcoholic is the person who can't. And a lot of times they. Do get shame, and they and they they do get uh, you know uh, looked on like they're losers. You know they're not losers; yeah. they're ill, and you know if they can't find some kind of solace in the in the organization that was developed to help them specifically, then that's a really sad state of affairs.
0: I I hate that phrase. Um, just hang out with the winners. You know, Well,
1: you know, you know what? We're supposed to hang out with the losers. That's, that's what right. the book
0: is telling us to do. There you go.
1: Find the people that really need help and work with them. Mm-hmm. Offer, them a, offer them a way out. And then when you're done with them, you don't own them. You, you, know, you <laughs> tell them to go out and do likewise with others. And then you keep moving forward. You keep finding people to work with. Yeah. That's the process in this book. You know, uh, it's it's morphed, you know, all the 12-step fellowships have morphed into this bizarre self-help, you know, uh, uh, group therapy thing that that is, you know, and the statistics have plummeted because of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it plummeted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, the, the Grapevine magazine uh, about a year ago, I think it was, yeah, I think it was about March a year ago, published an article where they actually did a study, and this, this was not just AA, it was a, a lot of different 12-step fellowships concerning addictive illness, you know, uh, NA, uh, CA. Uh, right. you know, they went around to a lot of them, and they did surveys outside of the meeting. And they came to the conclusion that 45% of the people attending these 12-step fellowships had been sober less than 30 days, Monty. Mm-hmm. 45% of them.
0: Yeah, I've yeah. been
1: sober less than thirty days. That's horrific. When this book says rarely have we seen a person fail, and then and then it talks about seventy-five percent permanent recovery rate for people who really try, something's gone wrong in a big way. And I, I got to tell you, there's no help coming from New York.
0: <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I,
1: think, I think I think the decisions that get made in the the central office go against. Uh, what what is in this book and, and the processes involved and how these people were successful in the early days? They're more about promoting whatever everybody wants these days in these meetings. You know, whatever the group conscience sure. wants. You know, let's let's turn the meeting into a bake sale or a bingo club <laughs> or something. I mean, you know, uh, it, it, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, but don't expect any help from the upper echelons of uh, uh, of New York, you know, to try to get things back on track. The only thing that's going to get it back on track is is the uh, is the renaissance that's going on in a lot of the twelve step fellowships, getting back to the basics of this book. That's the only thing that's going to help and that's going to improve survivability uh, for the for the alcoholic or the drug addict. So here he is. Yes, that's me, said the sick man, the very image. You fellows know your stuff, all right, but I don't see what good it'll do. You fellows are somebody. I was once, but I'm a nobody now. From what you tell me, I know more than ever I can't stop. At this, both the visitors burst into laugh, said the future fellow anonymous. Damn little to laugh about that I can see. The two friends spoke of their spiritual experience and told him about the course of action they carried out. What's the course of action, Monty?
0: The steps.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. He interrupted. I used to be strong for the church, but that won't fix it. I've prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn that I'd never touch another drop, but by 9 o'clock I'd be boiled as an owl. Next day, found the prospect more receptive. He had been thinking it over. Maybe you're right, he said. God ought to be able to do anything. Then he added, he sure didn't do much for me when I was trying to fight this booze racket alone. On the Mm. third day, the lawyer gave his life to the care and direction of his creator, step three, and said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. His wife came, scarcely daring to be hopeful. Though she thought she saw something different about her husband already, he had begun to have a spiritual experience. Right there on the detox bed on day three, he started to have a spiritual experience. And I think that happens when willingness willingness comes. I think that's the beginning of uh, the spiritual experience, Monty. Mm. That afternoon, he put on his clothes and walked from the hospital a free man. He entered a political campaign making speeches, frequenting men's gatherings, places of all sorts, often staying up all night. He lost the race by only a narrow margin. But he had found God, and in finding God, he found himself. That's an interesting paragraph, too. You have to understand, he was also working with alcoholics. He stuck with Bill and Bob uh, until the end of his days. He, stu- he stuck with the Alcoholics Anonymous crew. And he went out, um, on many nights, he went out trying to help other alcoholics. So he'd gone through the steps, and he was trying to help other alcoholics. But he also thought he should run for mayor, you know, like a week sober. <laughs>
0: I'm gonna so, be a drug and alcohol counselor. Yes indeed. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna
1: be a drug and alcohol So much for no major changes in the first year. I'm gonna be mayor. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they didn't care back then. They thought, all right, you know, you got God by your side. God bless you. Just remember you need to continue to work with other alcoholics and pray and meditate on a regular basis and meet with us. You know, you gotta stay with stay by your people. That was in June nineteen thirty five. He never drank again. He, too, has become a respected and useful member of his community. He has helped other men recover and is uh, is a power in the church from which he was long absent. So you see, there were three alcoholics in that town who now felt they had to give to others what they had found or be sunk. After several failures to find others, a fourth turned up. He came through an acquaintance who had heard the good news. He proved to be a devil-may-care young fellow whose parents could not make out whether he wanted to stop drinking or not. They were deeply religious people, much shocked by their son's refusal to have anything to do with the church. He suffered horribly from his sprees, but it seemed as if nothing could be done for him. He consented, however, to go to the hospital where he occupied the very room recently vacated by the lawyer. He had three visitors. After a bit, he said... The way you fellas put the spiritual stuff makes sense. I'm ready to do business. I guess the old folks were right after all. So one more was added to the fellowship. All this time, our friend of the hotel lobby incident remained in that town. He was there three months. He now returned home, leaving behind his first acquaintance, Dr. Bob, the lawyer, Bill Dodson, and the Devil May Care chap. These men have found something brand new in life. Though they knew they must help other alcoholics if they would remain sober, that motive became secondary. It was transcended by the happiness they found in giving themselves for others. They shared their homes, their slender resources, and gladly devoted their spare hours to fellow sufferers. You know, I wonder how many people in the 12-step fellowships are doing that today. They were willing by day or night to place a new man in the hospital and visit him afterward. They grew in numbers they experienced a few distressing failures but in those cases they made an effort to bring the man's family into a spiritual way of living thus relieving much worry and suffering a year and six months later these three had succeeded with seven more seeing much of each other scarce an evening passed that someone's home did not shelter a little gathering of men and women happy in their release and constantly thinking how they might present their discovery to some newcomer okay that's what it was about it wasn't about going there like it was a spiritual gas station to fill up. Right. It was more about going there to figure out how to give back. In addition to these casual get-togethers, it became customary to set apart one night a week for a meeting to be attended by anyone or everyone interested in a spiritual way of life. Aside from fellowship and sociability, the prime object was to provide a time and a place where new people might bring their problems. This is a misunderstood uh, uh, uh paragraph, Monty, you know, uh, uh, set aside one night a week where anyone and everyone can come and newcomers can share their problems. I don't know about you, but some of the areas that that I've frequented in in 12-step oriented fellowships, they set aside seven nights a week where newcomers can bring their problems, Yeah, (laughs) you know, to the (laughs) meeting, when really those problems, you know what you do, you share the problem with your sponsor or spiritual advisor and then you share the solution at the meeting. That's the right way to do it. That's
0: right. Well, let me ask okay. you. Let me ask you a question here, Chris. Sure. And you, you—I'm sure you've experienced this. Um, <clears throat> somebody will make a mention of. Uh, you know, some people have been sharing and they've been bleeding all over the table, and it's just been a rough time for them this week. And somebody will make a comment about that's not what we share in here, and then somebody will blow up and say, "If I can't share what's on my heart in here, then you know what good is this?" and and that, and that kind of thing, and just get really hurt by the fact that their friends were shut down by this guy. Um, what does that say to the newcomer?
1: You know, um, again, all problems can be solved by one simple thing in, in these fellowships, Monty, and that is strong sponsorship. Mm-hmm. you know uh if if you have a, if you have a sponsor and the, the sponsor should should share with you what's appropriate to share at the meetings mm-hmm. they should be giving you some guidance on that the people who uh who just love to hear themselves talk there's there's a lot of people like that there's the people who you know talk about their you know their their VA recovery program and their PTSD stuff and there, there's people who just share and share and share and share because they think sharing is helping them um, what they really need is they need uh, they need strong sponsorship. They need strong guidance. I'm not the type of person who shames somebody in in in, in one of these support groups. Right, games. me either. I, I don't say, you know, shut up. Take the cotton out of your ears and stick it in your mouth. Uh, uh, I think that the, the illness of alcoholism or drug addiction is shaming enough. We don't need to be shaming. That's right. Uh, but, you know, someone needs to take responsibility. Uh, and a lot of times it's the leader the meeting, the, the, the leader of the meeting. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things I think that's appropriate in that case is, is to, to directly ask the person, do you have a sponsor? Do you have someone that you're working with right after they're done sharing? And if they say no, you know, say, well, look, you know, most of what you're talking about can be solved by, by good sponsorship. I would recommend that you get a sponsor. I don't think that there's anything real wrong with that. You know, but but telling somebody, you know, uh, telling somebody they're stupid or telling somebody that they're wrong, you know, that can that can be shaming. Uh, There there are other there are other ways to do it more Uh delicately, more compassionately. Does that make any sense? It makes
0: absolute sense. Thank you.
1: Um, Outsiders became interested. One man and his wife placed their large home at the disposal of this strangely assorted crowd. That's T. Henry and Clarice Williams. This couple has since become so fascinated that they have dedicated their home to the work. <clears throat> Many a distracted wife has visited this house to find loving and understanding companionship among women who knew her problem, to hear from the lips of their husbands what had happened to them, to be advised how her own wayward mate might be hospitalized and approached when next he stumbled. You know, that, that was the origins, I think, of the al family systems, the T. The Henry and Clarice uh, meetings. Many a man yet dazed from his hospital experiences stepped over the threshold of that home into freedom. Many an alcoholic who entered there came away with an answer. He succumbed to that gay crowd inside who laughed at their own misfortunes and understood his. Impressed by those who visited him at the hospital, he capitulated entirely when later, in an upper room of his house, he heard the story of some man whose experience closely tallied with his own. Okay, that's a fifth step experience. And, again, there's something about visiting somebody in the hospital. They liked to do that back then. Even if you didn't need to be detoxed, they would put you in a hospital because they had you in a controlled environment, and then they would bring in the people to do their 12-step calls. I have done 12-step calls in hospitals a lot of times, Monty. That usually that usually results in the person feeling obligated enough to you because you went and visited them to start coming around, and to start working with you. not always 100% effective, but it's much better than to give somebody a meeting book. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A, 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 you know, send somebody some literature. It's much better the one-on-one contact. Yeah. Uh, the, ex- the expression on the faces of the women that indefinable something in the eyes of the men... The stimulating and electric atmosphere of the place conspired to let him know that here was Haven at last. The very practical approach to his problems, the absence of intolerance of any kind, the informality, the genuine democracy, the uncanny understanding which these people had was irresistible. He and his wife would leave elated by the thought of what they could now do for some stricken acquaintance his family. They knew they had a host of new friends. It seemed they had known these strangers always. They had seen miracles, and one was to come to them. They had visioned the great reality, their loving and all-powerful creator. Remember that the healing that these people experienced, they, rel- they related it as the direct result of an all-loving and all-powerful creator. That's how they explained this miracle. And it's way we it's the way we continue to explain it in, in twelve step fellowship.
0: You know, I'm, I'm noticing here, uh, for instance, uh, saying that um, the uncanny understanding which these people had were irresistible, and and uh, you know, it's almost suggesting here that um, that they weren't used to to having people talk that deeply about themselves or their issues. Was, was this a time back then when really the elephant in the middle of the living room, even more than today, just wasn't talked about?
1: I, th- I think when people talked about how their illness presented, how alcohol isn't presented, they talked about all the crazy things that happened in their lives, and then mm-hmm. they talked about their, their spiritual recovery process and the experience they've had with that i think I think that's basically what they did, and was there a little bit of informality about it? Was there some jokesters and was there was there some some people that were heavily uh, heavily religious and was, was there some people who were a little bit more psychological and you know was there were there, sure. were there different people yes yeah absolutely absolutely but uh, for, the, for the most part, uh, you know, for the most part, this is what those gatherings uh, looked like. You know, people were sharing their experience, mm-hmm. their strength, and their hope. They were sharing what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And again, I think we can take, uh, take some lessons from that. So often when you go into a speaker meeting in any fellowship, what you hear is what it was like, what it was like, what it was like.
0: <laughs> you, know, you don't
1: hear what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. Right. You basically hear forty minutes of drunk and then, and then I, and then I got sober. Thank you. You know, and the meeting's <laughs> over. That that's that's not a good way to balance right. out. You know, uh, sharing your recovery experience. Now, this house will hardly accommodate its weekly visitors, for they number sixty or eighty as a rule. Alcoholics are being attracted from far and near from surrounding towns, family dr- families driving long distances to be present. You know, people were coming down from Cleveland. A community 30 miles away have, has 15 fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Being a large place, we think that someday its fellowship will number in many hundreds. That happened very, very soon. The Cleveland group really exploded. The Cleveland group really taught, taught people how to become involved. Clarence Snyder and and his his Cleveland boys they got about the business of getting out there and sharing the message. They put ads in the paper, you know, got a drinking problem, call Clarence. You know, I mean, you know, they really got they really got busy in a big way and uh, accomplished a lot. Um, you know, hundreds of people were were in the Cleveland group in a very short period of time. But Life Among Alcoholics Anonymous is more than just attending gatherings and visiting hospitals, cleaning up all scrapes, helping to settle family differences, explaining the disinherited son to his irate parents, lending money and securing jobs for each other when justified. These are everyday occurrences. No one is too discredited or has sunk too low to be welcomed cordially if he means business, okay? Mm -hmm. That is a qualifier there, if he means business. And what did they mean by that? They meant, was this individual willing to do the 12 steps? If he wasn't, he did not mean business, and he was not welcomed. Yeah. Okay. This is you know, where, the, where the, the, the tradition came in that you know, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. It used to be an honest desire to stop drinking, and it used to be stronger than that. It used to mean, mean, it used to mean if they meant business. And I think it's right and well to open the doors as wide as possible. I would rather have five people in there that don't belong than to lose one person that does. I really would, Monty. Yeah. But I also think it's important for us to understand the origins of this whole process. What real you really do need to mean business to be able to recover.
0: Mm-hmm. You cannot
1: mm-hmm. recover sitting in a chair. You cannot recover sharing. You cannot recover making coffee. You cannot recover going on speaking commandments. You cannot. That's not how you recover. That's not you how You can stay did. sober that way if you're lucky, but you need to mean business to recover. You need to be like, like Dr. Bob, you know, uh, washing his hands from the operation, getting in his car and going up one side of the street and down the other, making amends. That's the type of we, you know, mean business that they were talking about back then.
0: Sure. Chris, we are right up against the clock.
1: Okay.
0: Um, so we're going to pause here. And folks, we're on page 161 at the bottom, and we're going to pick this up next week with uh, part three of A Vision for You and uh, possibly even start out with uh, uh, Dr. Bob's Nightmare. Yes, that would make sense. That, that would be great. All right. Ah, boy. I just uh, I'm, I'm amazed I'm amazed you talk about being amazed before you're halfway through this this whole workshop this whole study has uh, just been a real blessing for me and I know so many other people um, have uh, enjoyed this as well and certainly the uh, group that I work with on Thursday mornings so uh, Chris you're off to a speaking engagement is that correct
1: yeah, I'm going to go down and uh, speak at an event, uh, Serenity Weekend in Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, I-, I will be down there this weekend doing that. Well, you so That's j- going to be fun.
0: You just have a- an absolutely awesome time. Uh, let the people down there know that we're going to have a heck of a DVD ready for them here in just a few weeks. And uh, we'll go from there. We'll see everybody next week then.
1: Absolutely. Monty, it is
0: always a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. All right, my uh, my friends and families and recovery type-like folks, don't forget to check out our new blog and uh, also the YouTube videos. Uh, you can go to those just by going to take12radio.com on your internet dial. Don't forget to come back next week. So once again, and I should say for once again, the uh, take an hour to walk through the big book. We'll see you. Bye-bye.